0: Welcome. I'm Jack. If you didn't know that, it's good to see uh, new faces or faces I haven't seen for a while this morning. And uh, this morning, we are uh, going in a, we're in a series right now called "Invitation to Wholeness," if, you're, if you've been here or haven't been here, where we're considering God's invitation to participate in the life to which God has called us. Uh, we've been considering themes like God's invitation to relationships, uh, to service. To generosity, and today we're going to consider God's invitation to justice. Really important and uh, invitation, a subject on my heart, and many of yours. And we're going to use a text from the Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, It's Jesus' first sermon, so to speak, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but let's go ahead and read this together. Um, This is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Jesus went to Nazareth one day where he'd been raised. And on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue there, as he normally did, and he stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from, which, from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and he sat down. And every eye of the synagogue was fixed on him. And he began to explain to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. This is God's word to us. Well, as we consider and think about this um, this theme of justice, I think it's important to sort of name the elephant in the room, so to speak. Go ahead and put that up, Andrew. It's, it's really the only slide that requires a punchline, so there you go, okay. Um, which is as we come to, there you go, there's your joke for the day. I uh, looked long and hard for that, that cartoon, uh, which is as we come to a conversation around, and so the, for the therapists in the room, this is good, yeah. As we come to the conversation around justice, a challenge we face is that while we agree in principle on justice, we don't usually agree in practice. While we agree in principle, we don't agree in practice, which is to say we're born into a world with this spectacularly sense of justice, uh, spectacularly sensitive sense of justice. You just watch any of two of our youngest kids in this community, those that we dismissed just now, play with a toy, and you're going to see it within minutes. As one takes the other, the toy from the other, you'll immediately see the innate sense of injustice well up in the face of that child whose toy has been taken. Has this ever happened to any of you? Right. Everyone, from the youngest in the room to the oldest in some way or shape or form, will say that they want justice and despise injustice. Right? And yet, like I said, while we agree in principle, we don't often agree in practice. Some of the most significant disagreements in our society, politically just in the community we live in, in church, in Christian circles, are at a base level disagreements about the application and the scope of justice. Whether that's abortion, uh, whether that's gun control, capital punishment, universal health care, immigration, warfare. I mean, you pick an issue today in the news Any one of the issues we're facing, we are fundamentally divided around what's the right thing to do, what's the just thing to do. There is broad, deep, and even disheartening division in our society right now and in the church around the topic of justice. And so the question really is, why? Why are we so divided? If we all believe that justice is the right thing to do, why are we so divided about what that might look like? Well, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who served as the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom from 1991 to 2013, he once wrote about this, this very question. And he says this in his book, uh, Not in God's Name, which he wrote a few years ago. It has to do with the fact that we as a society are social animals. We form groups, we are tribal beings at very co- our very core. We're divided into different nations, languages, cultures, and codes, and these, are the basis, these form the basis of our identity. There's no such thing as humanity in the abstract, he says, just as there's no such thing as language or literature or love in the abstract. Identity is inescapably personal. And this is what he says leads to injustice and division. The world is divided into an us and them. That's how the world is, us and them. And do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that we are polarized around the work of justice because, in essence, we don't know how to fundamentally ask the right questions about justice. We are really good as a society, as individuals, as communities, at identifying categories of justice, uh, making bold statements about justice on social media platforms, even splitting off into us and them movements that are justice-focused. But we're not very good at asking deep questions about justice specifically of ourselves, but specifically with those we might disagree deeply with. Like, when's the last time you sat down with, maybe it was Thanksgiving, (laughs) with someone who you deeply disagree with and talked about an issue of justice and listened to them and asked the questions, what informs your view? Why do you think that way? When's the last time you did that? I can't remember the last time I did that. Questions like, what kind of world do you want to live in? Or what's, what's, what response do you really think we should have to this issue? Or if you could put yourself in the shoes of the victim or the perpetrator, what response would you hope for? Or what might healing actually look like around this issue? If we could imagine healing, what would healing look like? Or what might my work or your work or our work together for healing look like? Those are the kinds of questions that lead toward justice, and we often don't ask them. We're afraid to. All the kinds of reasons that Sachs talks about, we're we're so divided, and therefore we don't move toward transformative justice. We're not seeing it happen today. And so what I'd like to do with you this morning is just kind of look together at what are some of the questions we should be asking around justice Um, some different kinds of questions that come out of Scripture for us. And I want to use this text from Luke, which I think um, Jesus' Nazarene sermon, it's, you could call it his justice sermon, his first sermon. It's beautiful in so many ways, not the least of which for how brief it is. It's only eight words. I've never preached an eight-word sermon. (laughs) I love the brevity of it. It's clear. It's compelling. It gives you this picture of justice. It brings up some questions around justice that I want to look at with you. And you'll notice, this is, you'll notice if you have an outline, this is a little bit of a shift for us from the bulletin, so I'm going to put the questions on the screen for you in case you are a note taker. We're going to look at who the person behind justice is, <clears throat> we're going to look at what the meaning of justice is, and we're going to look at how we live in a, in a world of, uh, with hope in the midst of so much injustice. So the questions are, who is who's the person behind justice, what's the meaning of justice, and then how do we live with hope in the midst of so much injustice, Okay. So first, who's the person behind justice? Um, Jesus, as as, Jesus, as Luke tells us, enters the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. And uh, he stands up to take part in the service of worship, kind of like a liturgist would do. He's given a scroll to read from, which happened to be the scroll of Isaiah. And the text he chooses to read from is Isaiah, Isaiah 61, which is interesting because commentators suggest that there's no evidence of a lectionary in the first century uh, Jewish world There's no prescribed readings of the day, and so Jesus, most likely, when he was given scroll Isaiah personally, rolled or flipped <laughs> we would flip to isaiah sixty one He went deep into Isaiah, and uh, he personally chose this reading, which is I find fascinating, so he reads it. He rolls up the scroll and then he sits down to preach, and in that day, scripture was read from a standing position. And then the expository sermon was given from a seating position, a seated position. So that's kind of what she did. And his sermon, like I said, was just eight words. Verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. That's Jesus' first sermon. Now, what's important about that, other than it's really short, is that this word fulfilled is a very significant word in the New Testament. Um, It's a word that the Gospels and the the letters of Paul frequently use to describe the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus specifically as he relates to the Old Testament. You you find it all over the Gospels. And it's a word picture. It's actually a word that means to fill up to the top or to the brim, like you would fill a cup of coffee. We have coffee, by the way. Fill a cup of coffee up to the top, or maybe a bathtub with water. You fill it to the brim. And what that means as it relates to what Jesus is saying is that Scripture is now filled full with Jesus. A sort of maybe expressive way for Jesus to say that all the sayings of the Bible— all the promises, all the, all the prophecies, every last word, every last letter, every last punctuation mark, the entire law of God is universally and absolutely being accomplished by God in the person, person of Jesus. He's filling it up with himself. He is the word made flesh, as John 1.14 says, the word embodied Which may not surprise you very much because we talk about it a lot, but I think it's important because it's just another way for Jesus to say to this audience at that time that He just walk with me, you're going to experience the rest of it. Listen to me, you're going to experience the rest of it. Spend some time with me. His life is the gospel, He is justice embodied and incarnated. Biblical justice is not first and foremost, and I think this is really important for us to, to realize, is not first and foremost a set of bullet points. It's not a set of ethics or rules or guidelines that we tactic and strategies. Those are all important at informing how we do justice and guiding the work of justice. But biblical justice is rooted and informed by the character of God. It is is the outworking of God's character is what Jesus is saying. And, And this is, by the way, not to suggest we should not practice ethics. That, you know, we don't need to think deeply and in a nuanced way about the nuance, the, 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 the things that go into these conversations are devised strategies or um, form movements. You know, there are issues in our culture today, some of which I already named, that our generation needs to, to wrestle with uniquely, you know, that we are wrestling with. We're being forced to wrestle with, you know, racial injustice, climate change. I mean, those things were happening then, but they're very much happening now. And so we need to, to, to seek to be faithful as a generation to respond to those issues in our context. But what Jesus is saying, and I think this is very important for us, is that every issue, every ethic, every response, every principle, all justice in every context, in every time, in every era, is the outworking of an expression of God's character as revealed in Jesus. Everything. The whole law of God, the word of God, the ethics of God, you could say, are filled full by Jesus. And so the question is, when we come to who is the person behind justice, is really a question about how does Jesus embody the character of God as a person, as he relates to people, as he relates to individuals, as he relates to communities. You know, as complicated as those issues are, we often skip past the person of Jesus sometimes and think about the issues in abstract. We love to go to the letters of Paul. We love to go to the Old Testament prophets, as, I, as Jesus does. But we sometimes don't look at the person of Jesus as a, a justice leader. Um, we think of him as a cosmic friend sometimes. You know, my personal Jesus. We have quiet time with Jesus, but we don't think of him as leading movements. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, I do all those things. I am imbo- justice embodied. So what does Christ embodied, Christ-informed justice look like? Christ-centered justice look like? Um, That's the question for today. And as we come to the question, I think we should be bothered and uncomfortable a little bit, you know, because we're going to have to think about how Jesus would respond to issues that we we might have strong views on, um, where we think there is a right and a wrong. (laughs) You know, I mentioned some, and I saw some of you kind of bristle you know, gun control being one of them. We, think, we know we, there's a right and there's a wrong. And it's affecting people because we stand on the wrong or the right side. And we feel absolutely settled and convicted on issues like that. Um, where our view might be informed, and we have, to, we have to wrestle with where is our view being informed by? Is our view being formed by our culture and our position in our culture more than Jesus? We have to acknowledge that it's possible. On some issues, I'm not saying necessarily gun control, I picked that one out of a hat, but we have to acknowledge that sometimes our issue, it's possible as human beings in the 21st century as very finite human beings, not God, that sometimes our view is not God's view. And our response to issues might not be God's response or intended response. I think one of the most instructive examples of this, uh, how this happens, is in the Gospel of John, in chapter 8 of John, you know this story, where a group of men... Pharisees and legal experts who, by the way, were not the bad guys. I think we've, we've pigeonholed them as the bad guys in the story. Oh, yeah, they're the ones who wanted to get Jesus. But you know what? They're deeply religious. They are deeply concerned and committed, about, and committed to justice. That was their job in the world at the time. And so it's in that commitment to justice, they bring this woman who they believe was being unjust to Jesus, and they say to her, they caught her, she actually, one Bible says she was taken in the act of adultery. I think is a, a better way to describe it. Um, they bring her to Jesus because she, in their mind, has been unjust. She's broken the law. And they say to her, they put her in the middle of their group, which I think is interesting. Um, and they say, teacher, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone a woman like this. What do you say? What's the just thing to do? Right? And, of course, you'll remember what Jesus does. He first bends down and he writes something in the dirt, a move that has really confounded scholars and interpreters, and it's another sermon. So I'm not going to talk about that. But because they continue to question him, he's he's bending down there and then he stands.